You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. My guest this morning is Brett Baer, who is the political anchor for Fox News and is the author of a timely new book, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876. This is the latest of Brett's best-selling historical books about American presidents, including Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Ronald Reagan, and Dwight Eisenhower. Brett uh, is a a longtime journalist, uh, started out in local news. He was awarded the 2017 Saul Tayshaf Award for Excellence in Broadcast Journalism by the National Press Foundation. If all this isn't enough, Brett is also a scratch golfer. Uh, Brett, welcome to Washington Post Live. It's great to have you. Hey, David, thanks so much. Thanks for doing this. So your new book opens uh, hauntingly on January 6, 2021, with the assault on the Capitol. What did that day symbolize to you as you watched it unfold on television? Well, it's interesting. As as finishing this book, coming to the end of of the writing it, January 6th happens. And I'm part of the coverage that day uh, as it unfolds. And we see the violence and the historic nature of that really dark day. Uh, And knowing what I know just by writing about Grant and 1876, I know that that's the darkest day that we had um, at the Capitol and in the fight for democracy uh, for since that time. And I think that provided some perspective uh, for me uh, about where we've been in the past and what perhaps we need to go forward. Um, I thought I'd start the book like that because it was something that everybody was fresh in their mind uh, about how concerning it was. Uh, But you take that and you multiply it by exponentially our country at that time in 1876 was on the brink of tipping back to a civil war. And Grant's presidency is part of the reason uh, that it doesn't because of his uh, effort with the grand bargain. And we can talk about that, but it's uh, leadership that took us out of that that dark time back then. I want to talk, uh, Brett, about this historical a- analogy in a moment, but just to, to stay with uh, the opening of the book, uh, on the opening page, you, you have a, a vivid description of what uh, it was like for you. It, you note that as President Trump was uh, leading a crowd chanting, stop the steal, and now I'm quoting from the first page of the book, I explained on air that the reality was different and the president's speech had indicated to the crowd now marching to the Capitol. Should readers take that uh, as a, a, a statement that you don't believe that the election was stolen and that Biden had won a legitimate victory? 100%. And we covered as such. Um, you know, we've we've covered all of the questions. We've covered the the audit. We've covered the 70-plus uh, court cases around the country. We've covered state legislatures who have looked, look at the, looked at this. And um, that day, uh, I explained on air what that meant, what could potentially happen, and what could not happen, what Vice President Pence did not have the power to do. And we made that clear on air that day and ever since. 
So I, I do think that obviously there are some people out there who believe uh, the election was something else, that it was stolen. Uh, but until there is there was some evidence, something that moved a court, many of them Trump appointed judges, uh, you came to the conclusion, and I asked many Republican leaders uh, whether Joe Biden was the legitimately elected president. And to get that answer was important as, as we've covered politics uh, since then. You know, it's not going away. Obviously, the former president uh, brings that up quite a bit uh, and still does, puts out statements and, and others do as well. Um, but I think most Republicans would tell you on Capitol Hill and elsewhere that they wish that the focus would be on substance and policy and not uh, the last election. You read, I think, your forthright statement as a journalist of what the, the evidence was is important. Uh, and I, I think you're right that the people who kept us on track uh, while the president was talking about a steal uh, got us to uh, Inauguration Day and a, and a transition. We're in many cases Republican appointed judges, Republican state election officials, and that it's important that people recognize that, that the people who were, were the guardrails in effect were often Republicans. I want to ask you uh, to unpack for our viewers the, the fascinating analogy that you make. One of the book's subtitle includes a reference to the crisis of 1876, but I suspect many of our viewers don't know uh, the, about the deadlock between Rutherford B. Hayes and, and Samuel Tilden in 1876 and don't fully appreciate how similar uh, the two events are. So maybe you could just describe what was happening in 18, 1876, the dilemma that Grant faced as the outgoing president and what he did. Sure. Uh, in 1876, so it's Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican against Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, um, there is a split in the country. Uh, and Reconstruction has kind of come to an end. It has uh, for the most part been uh, the South is fed up with federal troops in the South. The North uh, increasingly is uh, coming to the conclusion that Reconstruction is coming to an end. Uh, but that's the battle in this election. It is so close uh, that it comes down to a few electoral votes and three states send up two sets of electors, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. In other words, they can't make a decision. So it goes to Capitol Hill, and the usual process is ground to a halt, uh, and the election is in doubt. And as that's happening, violence is bubbling up in different cities around the country and threatened violence on Capitol Hill. Um, so we are just coming out of a civil war, and there is some signal that the vestiges of the Confederacy feel that this is the signal to go back to a civil war and fight for their autonomy. Uh, in that vacuum, Grant uh, says he needs to act, but he needs to act in an impartial way so that he's not putting his finger on the scale to say, obviously, he wants the Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, to win, but he wants to be fair. So he pushes for an electoral commission, which are five um, House members, three Republicans, two Democrats, five senators, three Democrats, two Republicans, and five members of the Supreme Court. Uh, and it basically comes down to this grand bargain that he negotiates behind the scenes, uh, in which they're pulling federal troops out of the South. The South agrees to stay in the Union 
and to fight for black equality and, and no slavery, and that Rutherford B. Hayes is elected the president, plus the Republican governors who were in also being contested in those elections would agree to step down and let Democrats run the state houses. That grand bargain uh, saves the union, in essence, by keeping the country together. Brett, like you, I, I'm a, a fan of, of President Grant and think the revaluation of him upwards is correct. But I do want to ask you the, for me, haunting question about what happened in 1876. Um, yes, Grant and his compromise uh, saved the Union, you could say, uh, kept uh, 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 Hayes uh, in the White House, put Hayes in the White House. But at, at what cost? It, it meant the end of, of Reconstruction. Um, you could argue that it, it amounted to a capitulation to an insurrection that was taking place in the, in the South, that armed uh, vigilantes were roaming the South, attacking uh, freed blacks who were, who were trying to, to gain their rights. It, it ended that effectively, and, and the United States then entered a period of 70 years or so of Jim Crow segregation, which was not our finest hour. So, no, by uh, far. Think, think with me about that. Was the cost of the grand bargain more than, than, than should have been paid? And what, what, were, the, what were the negatives of, 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 in effect, capitulating to these armed people in the South who were attacking blacks? Yeah. Well, I think you're right, and that argument can be made, and Grant thought about that. But again, as I mentioned, there was this feeling that Reconstruction had come to a close, that the, there was such a frustration with the federal troops in the South, and there was a realization in the North that it was not sustainable in the long term. Um, I agree with you in the reality of the civil rights strife that happens in the years to follow and the Jim Crow um, laws and, and the other atrocities that happen after that. But remember that Grant fought his entire life for um, black equality, for the push for the 14th, 15th Amendment, um, the citizenship and the right to vote. He fought the KKK with federal troops in the South. He did everything in his life and his presidency to hold the country together and to fight uh, for African-Americans. Um, I think uh, he realized the danger of that moment, but he believed that leaders after him would take up the baton of Abraham Lincoln's vision, which he was really trying to realize. What Andrew Johnson was arguably one of, if not the worst president that we had, uh, the most racist, and uh, took a lot from Lincoln backwards. Uh, Grant had to reset that, and his presidency in doing that is very consequential. The impact down the road, David, I think you're right. Um, it's just that I think all of the negatives of Jim Crow in all those years shouldn't fall on Grant because of all that he tried to do uh, in the eight years of his presidency. That's that's well, well said, but I, I want to ask you about uh, the legacy of Reconstruction. It's argued by uh, a lot of uh, black uh, uh, leaders that the, the job of reconstruction uh, needs to be revisited. 
and that in fact that's what America's in the midst of now in in the intense reaction across the country to the George Floyd uh, uh, murder, which recalled these horrible images from the Jim Crow days of lynching of blacks, that, that that's what we're living through now. Uh, and that it's in a sense overdue because Reconstruction was halted, uh, aborted in its initial phase. What do you think about that argument? I think there's a lot, you know, listen, just researching uh, for this book, um, the atrocities that happened uh, before that moment leading up to that, it is hard to um, come to grips with the fact that we as a country ever let that happen, ever let any of that happen. And, um, you know, it's, it's emotional as you read some of those accounts. And, and Grant was affected by those things uh, directly. Uh, I, th I think we are going through a time where we're coming to grips with, with everything post uh, Reconstruction and re-looking at it. Um, but the book ends with a scene after the George Floyd killing um, and th that horrific uh, situation and, and the protests that are going on around the country. And um, it's in San Francisco, the scene at the end of the book, where a group is pulling down the Grant statue in San Francisco Park. And a reporter is there asking the group about you know, why they're pulling down that statue. And they say, well, he's part of the Civil War. He's part of the Civil War era. He had a slave. Um, we need to move forward from that and not have that uh, recognized. And I thought that that was just really interesting because here is Grant who, yes, his father-in-law gave him a slave, uh, but he freed that man soon, soon thereafter, and then spent the rest of his life fighting for equality uh, for blacks and fighting slavery with everything he had. Um, he makes changes in his presidency, and, and blacks are serving in Congress. Some places, they're majorities of the voters. Uh, there's senators. Uh, after Grant, it takes 92 years before the next African-American uh, member of the U.S. Senate. Uh, so I do think there has to be a reevaluation, uh, but it's also we can learn from specifics in history and not, you know, I'm thinking glaze over uh, certain parts that you don't hear about, which includes the Grant presidency. I, I, I share your view that toppling a statue of, of Ulysses Grant um, in the name of racial justice is a, a unlikely action. Hard to, hard to understand. But turning back to the to the present, uh, many argue that there is an insurrection in the country today. It surfaced visibly on January 6th, but it appears to have deeper roots to be a, a broader, um, um, tougher to deal with than that one event. Uh, Merrick Garland, our attorney general, is leading an effort by the Justice Department to prosecute, to un uncover, uh, and then prosecute that insurrection. And I wonder if you feel, uh, both as a journalist, but, but really as an historian, uh, that that effort by our attorney general makes sense, uh, that we need to deal with the, any evidence of a current insurrection in as uh, tough a way as possible. Sure. I mean, listen, uh, it's not for me to decide what, what the best policy is going forward, but um, going after someone, anyone for specific crimes is obviously the, the job of, of law enforcement and the attorney general. 
Um, and we'll cover all aspects of that. Um, but perspective is also needed in the big picture, not to say that that day wasn't heinous, and it really was. And I called it that day, one of the, the darkest days on Capitol Hill. Um, and there are people who did bad things who are going to get uh, prosecuted. Um, but my point is a, a bigger one in that we as a country have been on the brink of something, I think, a lot bigger than where we are right now. We are very divided, and it is a, a very partisan split, as you mentioned. Um, there are sometimes two realities in certain stories, um, but we are still a, a union together. And um, I think we have to remember, and this book taught me, that it takes constant vigilance uh, to keep a republic, and you got to fight for it. And so part of that is to cover it fairly, um, ideally without emotion, and um, all sides of it, um, so that people can make informed decisions at home. And that's what I'm trying to do. You, you're very specific in the, in the book in, in making that argument that you to quote one passage, you say that there were times in our history where divisions were so deep that there were two separate realities being experienced by the citizenry. So that obviously brings me to the question of how we in the media deal with those conflicting emerging realities. And I'm, I'm curious what you say when uh, critics argue that uh, Fox News, where you work, uh, at least in its opinions segments, is encouraging that sense of alternative reality and making it harder to heal divisions at a time when we need to do that? Well, I mean, obviously we're not talking about Fox News here, but I'll, I'll go down this road with you, David. I, I answer this question all the time. You know, there's opinion side and there's a news side, just like at your paper, there's an opinion side of the paper and a news side. Um, and my job is to look through horse blinders at my hour and to cover the news um, as fairly as I possibly can. The opinion people do uh, great work as far as expressing their opinion. Uh, I don't think um, that they are encouraging insurrection, if that's what you're asking. I do think that they're expressing uh, frustration about certain things. Um, and in a, a heated way that sometimes on both sides of the aisle has happened uh, in, with opinion makers. My job is to cut through all that and to, to say, here's one side and the other side, and you make a decision. Um, you know, I, I've been at Fox for 24 years. It's a, um, it's a great place to work, number one. They've been very good to me. And um, more importantly, they've empowered the news side. Um, Jennifer Griffin, uh, Peter Ducey at the White House, um, our Justice Department team. We break stories all the time uh, that are news stories. And so uh, the opinion folks do one thing and I do another thing, but we're all under the same umbrella. Let me just uh, ask you about a, a moment in, in your journalism and, and Fox's that I admire. You and I talked before the November 2020 election about the difficulties that we would face in the news media on election night with so many uh, late uh, absentee ballots. And I quoted you in one of my columns as 
saying that we just needed to follow the rules uh, of our of our business of our our uh, uh, long experience of covering elections and not be be swayed by the arguments that would inevitably come that night. One of the uh, really extraordinary uh, moments in that election night coverage was when was when Fox uh, called Arizona uh, for uh, Joe Biden uh, before other networks had, um, and you got calls from the White House. As I read the story, you got a lot of criticism afterwards. Just to tell us a little bit about about that night. Uh, anchors are always in the hot seat, but you really were in the hot seat. What was that yeah. like? Well, it, it came as a surprise. Uh, Martha and I were not uh, ready for that announcement to be made when it happened. Uh, Bill Hemmer was actually on the, the big board doing a scenario about um, different electoral votes and what could happen. And then the state of Arizona turned to blue. Uh, and he said, did you make a call? And then we got the news that we had made the call. So um, just to be clear, uh, about 78% of the vote was in, the polls were closed, uh, and the decision desk made the call that they made, as they do in other states with um, their stats and predictions of what's left out there. Um, so our decision desk has a really good track record of being very accurate. Uh, and yes, there was you know, all kinds of reaction right away uh, to that call. Uh, so what we did was lift the curtain and tried to get our decision desk people uh, on the air as fast as possible, Arn in Michigan, others, uh, to, to talk about why the call was made, when it was made, and uh, how confident they were. Um, I, I don't think it would be the focus that it is now had everything not stopped as far as the counting uh, across uh, the board and some of those election um, boards uh, stopped counting that night. So then the focus was on that and the call. The Associated Press also made that call that night. And, um, and we obviously stood by it uh, throughout and uh, still do to this day. As I say, I think it was a, a courageous and uh, admirable moment in journalism. And I, I just wanted a chance to to recall it for our, for our viewers. Looking ahead, Brett, you write that the heartbeat, heartbeat of our republic is the electoral process in which the people declare their choice for president freely and fairly. There are a lot of people who are worried, um, I think on both sides, about uh, our, our next presidential election and uh, the voting process. There are attempts to, to legislate uh, uh, some new federal measures that are hung up in, uh, in Congress. But, but I'm, I'm curious about whether you worry that this fundamental American right, uh, our, our right to vote and choose, choose who will govern us, is under th threat now in a way that uh, I can't remember uh, in my lifetime. Does that, does that concern you? Well, of course, and covering it uh, is a big part of uh, being able to uh, look at each state and what they're doing. Um, there is a concern when you talk to election officials about, about that and making sure that they're doing everything they can to, number one, make sure the vote is, is fair, but number two, to make sure that people in the country believe the vote is fair. You know, back to Ulysses S. Grant, 
his biggest fear was that it would the election commission and the um, the effort to get to a deal would not be accepted by the public. It would not be legitimate. Uh, and that's why he felt like he had to step back and be as neutral as he possibly could in this process. Um, and that's the most important thing is that people feel like we as a country are expressing ourselves as a nation to keep this republic that we have to keep on fighting for. Uh, and we do that uh, by the vote every time we do it. Now, you know, it'll be a test in 2022 and that'll be a precursor to 2024. Um, but the hope is, is that there are lessons learned from 2020, and we'll see if that, in fact, is the case. You have uh, written about some great uh, leaders uh, who were presidents, uh, Eisenhower, Reagan, FDR, and now Grant are, are four examples of, of people who either had or, or discovered qualities of leadership that that helps save our country. Uh, do you worry, as, as I sometimes do, that the quality of leadership uh, on all sides simply isn't what it needs to be in this period of such division and difficulty to keep our country going? Yeah, I, I do think that there's uh, a need for leadership and, and people to step up and uh, in the current environment, and you add social media and everything else to it, a lot of times it is easy to play to the base. Um, Eisenhower used to say, let's solve the things that we agree on uh, and then fight over the things that we don't. And the sad part is, is that there is a lot of agreement up on Capitol Hill. People don't really fully grasp that, but they, the lawmakers go to their corners uh, because they're fighting over other things. Um, I, I think we could use uh, a dose of, of real leadership, and, um, and that goes for both sides of the aisle. You know, the one thing I found with all of those leaders you mentioned, Eisenhower, Reagan, FDR, and Grant, is that they had some personal thing that they went through, um, a sort of a crucible uh, that made them a harder person or a better leader in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Grant really came from nothing. He had horrible um, uh, time as a businessman, as a farmer, didn't want to be a soldier, uh, obviously had a drinking issue out when he was in the Northwest Territory, uh, went to his lowest point selling firewood uh, in Galena, Illinois, and three years from then would go on to be the Union General, and then obviously President of the United States. Eisenhower came from abject poverty uh, and made his way up the ranks. Reagan dealt with an alcoholic father uh, and the troubles that ensued. FDR came from very uh, significant wealth, but then was struck by polio. And that was his crucible to get through that made him a better leader. I don't know what the leader, who the leader is uh, and what he or she has gone through, um, but we could definitely use a couple of those people. Let me ask you a, a question that uh, I hear so many people asking, it'd be wrong not, not, to, not to put it to you. Um, when I talk to Senate Republican leaders and ask them who, who's likely to be the nominee in 2024, they say, nah, it's not gonna be Trump. But boy, you sure see a lot of uh, momentum out there for, for Trump as a candidate. What, what would be your guess as to whether uh, he'll uh, run for president again? 
I didn't think he was going to, David, but everything I say, see and people I talk to uh, suggest that he's he is or leaning that way. Uh, depends on you know his health, um, where he is um, in that point. But that decision, whatever happens, uh, will be the biggest political decision as it lays out uh, for both sides of the aisle uh, as far as what happens in 2024 and beyond. Uh, that decision, whether he's running or not, uh, will be a game changer. Uh, so I can't say definitively, but I, I'm definitely more on the side of he's running than not, um, more than I was. So I want to, uh, unfortunately, uh, bring this to a close because we've reached the end of, of a half hour. Fascinating discussion with the journalist that I respect. It's great to have you on Washington Post Live. Uh, the book is To Rescue the Republic, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and The Crisis of 1876. It's a really fascinating account of a complex uh, but, but very gifted president and a time that is eerily uh, like our own. Uh, Brett Bear, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, David. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.